Welcome to Paradis, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast is Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. As usual, welcome, gentlemen. Good to be back with you both. Thanks so much, Brian. We're excited to join. Well, as most of you know, throughout this semester, our focus has been on apologetics. We're using Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard, and we truly do hope you've been enjoying these podcasts if you've been following along. If this is your first one, well, we welcome you. On our last episode, we answered the question, what about other worldviews? The episode was part one of a two-part series, and in that episode, Joe and Luke gave a bird's-eye view of seven worldviews. And if you missed that episode, of course, I encourage you to check it out. This week, we're jumping into the second part of that same question, what about other worldviews? But we're asking which worldview is correct. On this episode, we'll dig a tad deeper into each worldview, weighing it in light of the Christian faith and maybe just positioning some of its weaknesses as well. So what we're not going to be doing is defining what these worldviews are. If you want the definition of them, of course, I'll refer you back to episode one. So let's get started. Luke, last episode, you gave us an overview of theism. This week, can you go into more depth comparing it to maybe some of the other worldviews and why we, particularly here at Veritas, believe that this is the correct worldview? Absolutely, Brian. As all of you gentlemen know, there is so much time that could be spent simply articulating this specific aspect. Volumes beyond measure have been written on a theistic worldview. We're just going to try to do this in a couple of minutes. So for our listeners, we want to continue to encourage you to follow us along as we unravel some of these things. But in theism, rather than just talking about the bird's eye overview, we want to look more at how holding this worldview really affects the way that people think, how they live, and how it's going to actually affect the way that they interact with their own environment. So having the understanding of theism means that you're embracing what we would call a first cause, that everything that has a beginning needs a cause. And you might find things about this, say, for instance, in some of the teachings of William Lane Craig, he has taken a modified version of an Islamic argument to actually flesh this idea out. He uses this as one of his premises in his syllogism of this, and that this is not saying that God has a beginning, and therefore there must be a cause for God. It's saying that anything that has a beginning must have a cause. So having a personal creative being who is the universe's first cause is followed by a number of other things. And that's why the worldview that is associated with theism carries with it this idea of an unchanging moral standard. The infinite God is an unchanging God, a creative God, a God that can intervene in his creation with supernatural acts. 
therefore showing himself to be very similar to the God of the Bible, although there are two other forms of religion that believe in the idea of a, uh, a theistic personal God. But you have an unchanging moral standard that goes back. It directly follows from the person and personality of this God, and it's a superlative moral standard. It is a transcendent moral standard. In other words, we believe that God, in revealing himself and having created the way that he did and created humanity the way that he did, has in doing so revealed a superlative moral standard, not one that's the product of consensus. This is part of the theistic worldview. And then three, another idea here is that because there is a moral standard and because it is unchanging, it lays upon people several things such as moral living. There's the expectation if the creator says this needs to be this way because I am this way, then there is, unlike Nietzsche, right, who wanted to say there should be no such thing as ought when it comes to understanding and action. In contrast to that, this view says God is as such, therefore man must be as such. And it draws that linear connection between the morality that humans need to embrace and the morality that is clearly revealed in God. This also lays upon men hope because you have an eternal God that is infinite who will at some point reconcile with both his creation of people and those things that we enjoy as an environment. And so there's hope, and that hope brings purpose. Interestingly enough, on a quick note, this is not like a humanist pragmatism where it says, well, through our machinations, we figured out that people need hope, that people need some system of morality, that people need some kind of purpose. Therefore, the Christians have manufactured this in order to help them feel better about the world in which they live. No, theism fulfills the idea, not rather than begging the question, as to how it is that we could have a first cause that shows a fulfillment of all these things, rather than us creating something in our own minds to try to fulfill the need for purpose, moral living, and hope. And lastly, this is a perfect God. So theism, it, it predicates that. And it's not in the sense that we have affirmed or approved this perfection. In other words, we think, you know, we look at what God appears to be and we're like, oh, well, that's nice. It's God doesn't do things because they're right or perfect. God does them because he is right and perfect. And so he is the defining standard of perfection rather than being sort of the product of deduction that men use to try to point to some of his attributes. And and so therefore, since he is a perfect being, he also deserves perfect worship. And that is something that's not just a command, like it's not this tyrant in the sky that's commanding people to worship him. It's this loving, personal, creating God who in his work, when people open their eyes to it, it evokes within them the worship of which he is worthy. That's that's great. Such a great overview there, Luke. And and I'm going to get a little out of order. Normally I send or save this question for the end. But because this is such a pivotal question, so important to the Christian worldview and really any monotheistic worldview, um, are there any books, Joe or Luke, that you would recommend 
that deals specifically with the existence of God. I know after part one of the worldview, we gave some general books, but what would you recommend to someone who goes, okay, I'm, I'm trying to grapple with this existence of God and the whole God thing. Um, what book would you recommend that really kind of explains um, God's existence, that there's one true God? What, what would you say, Joe, to them? Well, um, I would first point them to a man named Thomas Aquinas. Uh, he was a 13th century AD thinker, and he had much to say in his Summa Theologica. In book one, uh, you can read all about his arguments for a transcendent, personal, uh, all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, infinite, impassable, simple God. Uh, all these attributes are involved in this whole concept called theism. Uh, that is, is huge. And then also, secondly, in our modern day, you have uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, who has his um, uh, Baker's Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics that deals with the existence of God. And you also have William Lane Craig's works, uh, Reasonable Faith, that deals with the existence of God as well. So there's many sources that people can draw upon. And the key is, as Luke said, you know, it's important to deal with that first cause issue, that there has to be a theistic God in order to account for the way the world is today. And that calls for a first cause from a cause that itself did not need a cause. Mm. So good. Luke, what about you? Any any books dealing specifically with God's existence? Any Anything that would be helpful for our listeners? Absolutely. We actually... Just became aware of a book that has come out by Lee Strobel, the same one who's the author for The Case for Christ. And the title of his book is, Is God Real? And he goes through a number of different cases there using physics, using biochemistry and several other things that establish building upon this idea of an uncaused cause not being um, something within the finite world, right? There's no such thing as an uncaused caused cause within the finitude of the world that we know. But there is a person who is a cause for all those things with which we are familiar. And he uses environmental information, such as the fields that I mentioned, to make the case for this. Cosmology, physics, and biochemistry are three of the areas that he deals with. And I think it would be a, a good addition to the books that Dr. Holden has mentioned. Yeah, right. That's right. A great introduction to the other books. Well, thank you both guys. I know, I know that was a little out of order, but again, it's such a huge and important topic. I thought we should tackle some books there up front. So let's go to the second worldview that we considered last week, Joe, and I believe you gave us an overview of what deism is. So this week, can you give our listeners more insight into what deism believes and and comparing it with the Christian understanding and maybe some of the flaws of deistic thinking? Sure, Brian. You know, uh, last episode, we had a description of all seven of these worldviews, and deism was the belief that is just like theism, but minus the miracles. In other words, uh, deists believe that uh, God created the world. He miraculously brought something to be from nothing and then let the world go on its own. He kind of waved bye-bye to it. 
And that is a huge demarcation from what we know as theism. So deism really centers around the miraculous. And this is the problem with deism is that they believe that there was a first miracle, that is creation, and then there was no subsequent miracles after that. It seems to be an inconsistency in their view. I mean, it's uh, if God can accomplish the biggest miracle of all, bringing something into be from nothing, i.e. creation, then can't he achieve lesser miracles in the world and so forth? It just seems to be an inconsistency. But then again, deists also ignore all the evidence that supports the subsequent miracles that we read about in the Bible. We have eyewitness testimony. We have records that date back to the first century uh, when these miracles took place. Um, so if the deists reject the testimony, they also really need to reject uh, much of our modern judicial system that relies on eyewitness testimony and firsthand accounts and written documents to substantiate an event for ever happening. But I will say that though the deists rightly focus on natural theology, that means look into nature, they look into science, they see how the world works, and they develop a theology of God, what God is like based on what we see here in the natural world, and we need to commend them for it. But the miraculous they reject because they believe that the uh, forces of nature are, or the laws of nature are fixed and inviolable. And to say the laws of nature are fixed and inviolable basically precludes or dismisses altogether any type of supernatural from taking place because the supernatural or a miracle is a is an exception to the laws of nature and if the laws of nature are fixed then there can be no suspension or exception to them but even there they would misdefine the laws of nature nature as unflexible or immovable or unviolable because the laws of nature what they do is simply describe the way the universe usually operates it doesn't describe the way the universe must operate. And if the laws only describe the way the universe usually operates, then there can be exceptions to those laws, which you and I call miracles. And then the last thing I would probably critique deism on would be that they have a overemphasis on the distance of God from his creation. I would think if God miraculously created the universe and the people in it, um, then why wouldn't he want to have something to do with that creation and involve himself in the world and so forth? So an uh, unfortunate consequence of deism would be a detached and impersonal God, which is polar opposite from theism. Hmm. That's a great, great overview. Thanks for that, Joe. Wonderful. Well, then let's go to the third one um, that, again, last week, Luke, you gave us the, the definition, uh, explained what finite godism is. But how does this concept of finite godism compare with the Christian worldview and, and what are some of its flaws? Great question, Brian. I, I think that finite godism is probably, out of the ones we've looked at so far, what we would consider the most anthropomorphic view. And by that, I mean, it takes what can be known of man and, and superimposes it upon God, sort of as if God is just a more amplified version of what can be observed in human beings. 
and perhaps even idealistically tries to take what man is and how he experiences things and how he functions and just moves it to the next level and says, well, there's God. But the problem with this is that this causes a finite God. Now, the reason why that's a problem in the Christian worldview is that those two words do not go together in our understanding of theism. There's no such thing as a finite being to which we would ever apply the term God. There is only an infinite being that exists in three persons, as we know. That's a more theological side. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that, but this is an infinite being that is not the product of deduction based on what we know of men, but rather is the archetype by which man has been created. The image of God, as we would say, lives in man, not the other way around. And that's where this view really gets the first thing wrong, because now we have created a, a circumstance in which there is infinite reductionism. If God is finite, then that means that there is a presupposed cause which turns into infinite reductionism. Well, then if that cause caused a finite God, then what caused the cause that caused, et cetera, et cetera, right? So in those instances, it's initiated infinite reductionism, but it's also now a finite being who by definition is non-infinite and he cannot be an ultimate being that might be worthy of perfected worship mm. because now he is a construct in however many ways that he needs to be in order to try to solve some of the issues that men are struggling with here in the world. They've taken away from him his infinite power. And so one of the things that is indicative of this view is that God may have been powerful enough to create the world, but now it's gotten away from him. He didn't walk away from it, but it's gotten away from him, and he cannot combat all of the evil that's happening and the moral quagmires that humans have created. He's just sort of nonplussed about that. He's still a personal God, but not really one we would consider to be absolute. There's a lot of relativity in this view. And, you know, he's he's not really able to deal with the issues of sin. And so these things are not clearly defined. And so man's problem, as opposed to what we'd see in theism, isn't that he had sinned and there's a clear-cut issue that he sinned against an infinite holy God, but rather Man just happens to too imperfectly embody the faults that are present in the God of his own creation here. Yeah. And therefore. And we, oh, I'm sorry about that, Luke. I was going to say, I was going to say, we see this a lot and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot today in process theology, this, this idea that God's kind of evolving. He's, he's sort of still changing that he doesn't have a, his hands on everything, but he's, he's in the process of trying to, trying to figure things out. Is, is, is would that be a correct understanding? Absolutely. This would be an open theism. This would be in the understanding of a, the mutability of God, one of the classic attributes where God is unchanging. And finite Godism, God is not unchanging. He is literally learning, and he's apparently not doing that great of a job of it, and therefore people are suffering. But it's a way for them to escape having to deal with the ideas of the contradictions of sovereignty and perfection versus what's happening in the world. But it directly contradicts the scriptures and the regular assertions that you find in the scriptures of God's complete supremacy. It's also based on a logical fallacy and misguided expectations, and it seeks to make human judgment greater than God's, which then begs the question as to whether this is a God at all that we're dealing with or if it's just sort of an escape hatch. Hmm. 
So good. So good. Great, great. A lot to chew on there, Luke. We do thank you for that. Well, let's now go to the the next one, Joe, that you defined for us in last episode, but maybe this episode you could expand upon that or show some of the reasons where it falls short, and that is on the topic of atheism. For obvious reasons, atheism contrasts with the Christian worldview, but why why does atheism fall short? Well, there's so many reasons why atheism um, takes a nosedive when it comes to the worldview question. Remember, atheism is the belief that there is no God. Karl Marx, Ayn Rand, uh, Sam Harris, and others, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, subscribe to atheism in their various forms. But the first criticism of atheism would be that they don't have a first cause of the universe. Um, You had Luke describe eloquently the reasons why theism is true. Well, atheism is just the opposite. They have no way to account for how this physical universe, time, space, and matter came into being without a first cause. You see, it used to be that atheists would say, well, the universe was eternal. All this matter is eternal. It's always been here. It doesn't need a cause. And then we pointed out that if you're saying that the universe is eternal and doesn't need a cause, why can't our God be eternal and not need a cause? And then secondly, science has informed us. We know a lot more about the material universe now that it is not eternal, that it is finite. It's running out of usable energy uh, to heat loss. And therefore, it does need a cause. That means it had a beginning. And everything that has a beginning needs a cause. And so what the atheists unfortunately fail at is that they can't answer or account for why the universe is here or the way it is as it appears to us today. And then secondly, they can't answer several very important questions because they lack this first cause of the universe. First of all, they can't answer how can something come from nothing? Secondly, how can intelligence come from non-intelligence? How can being come from non-being? How can order come from non-order? And so they are left without anything to get the ball started. There's no first finger to push the first domino, and they simply run roughshod over uh, the, the axiom that says every effect needs a cause. The universe is an effect, therefore it needs a cause. And then on the moral side of things, uh, Brian and Luke, they have not understood that there is a moral absolute that must be behind any moral laws that are given. Uh, Laws don't just pop up willy-nilly, and if something is a moral absolute, then it must have been legislated. But if it's been legislated, it must have a legislator, and that legislator theists call God. And C.S. Lewis really eloquently dealt with this moral problem within atheists because atheists want to say that the world is getting worse or the world is evil because they do affirm the reality of evil, but they can't justify it because they don't have an absolute standard of good over it by which to measure the world's evil by. And that's how the former atheist C.S. Lewis came to the Lord as he realized that he keeps saying that the world the world is getting worse, but you can't say something is getting worse unless you have an absolute standard of what is best. And so they fail on the moral issues too. 
But I just don't want to bash on atheists at this point. They've served as a healthy corrective to over-exuberant theists who kind of want to run, you know, and without doing their research and thinking and and just put forth arguments that that sometimes are are hard to sustain. And they also affirm the real reality of evil. So mm-hmm. I think that that's um, a good thing that helps theists uh, fine tune their arguments and and make a better better articulation of their views. Yeah, in an interesting way, they're they're helping sharpen the iron from a theist's standpoint. Y- yeah. You know, Joe, a lot of these guys are very very vocal. In, in their atheism, meaning they write book after book and they're on TV show after TV show. To your knowledge, are there any good books that our listeners could maybe turn to that kind of address some of the main critiques that that um, these, uh, you know, I think of Dawkins and, and others, uh, any books that, that you're aware of that address responding to to the claims that these guys are made some some books that we haven't already mentioned um i i know alistair mcgrath who's a theologian and scientist i know he wrote something um in response to the god delusion which i believe was a hawkins book but can you think of anything else um i know a lot of the guys from the discovery institute also address this but what what are your thoughts yeah, um, Frank Turk has written a good book called Stealing from God, and he shows and he turns their arguments back on them and how they use God's creation that can only be accounted for by a first cause God in order to make their atheistic arguments. Uh, Turek does a great job in turning those things around, basically saying, use your own things to prove your argument. Don't use God's things to prove uh, your argument. And then there's a, a book that's probably out of print by now, and he doesn't specifically deal with the new atheists, but he deals with um, the concepts that form the basis of theism, which directly apply to the atheists' argument. And that is Stuart Hackett wrote a book called The Resurrection of Theism. And that's a must read for everybody who is a theist, a Christian. Uh, he deals with all kinds of things under this topic of atheism. Well, thanks for that. That's great, great information. So let's go to the next worldview, kind of unpacking a little bit more. Luke, last week you defined pantheism for us. So how does pantheism stand up against the Christian worldview, and, and what are some of its um, flaws and foibles? Well, it's really, excuse me, the polar opposite of atheism. We've gone from no God to everything being God. Now, what's interesting about it is that it's not saying that there's multiple gods, as we'll discuss in another view later on here, but that everything is God. So we have this being shown clearly in religious systems like Hinduism, some forms of Buddhism. There's one or two forms, I think one in particular, that can also support an atheistic worldview. But the other forms of Buddhism are predicated on this idea that deity is everywhere, and God is world. Now, this would be an impersonal God, because if everything's God, obviously a a street lamp or, you know, a fence post aren't going to be a very personal way to relate to a deity. Nonetheless, it would be considered to be God. So God, in this sense, is very relative. And most of these systems believe in reincarnation, sometimes 
you know, beings go through cycles. It's very Eastern in its understanding here, but they they believe that basically something happened in the past to where all things that have this godness about them have, for lack of a better term, spiritual amnesia. And we mentioned this briefly last week, but Ron Hubbard's view in Scientology he actually puts a science fiction backstory to this with Xanu and these Thetans coming, being sent to the world and being blown up with hydrogen bombs. I'm not exaggerating. That's actually what he says. And their spirits get trapped here in the atmosphere of Earth and are sort of looking to recover their original status as these godlike beings. So he's incorporating some of these ideas of pantheism in there. But this is inconsistent because if people are God— and God is unchanging based on their own understanding within this system, people change. And the systems that support this view actually give people opportunity to change, to become enlightened, particularly Buddhism. And so if people are God and God is unchanging, but people change, then therefore people cannot be God. So you have those two self-eliminating viewpoints where people are God and people are not God because they're behaviors excluded. Now, something that's very convenient and interesting is that this system doesn't like to use logic. It says logic doesn't apply to God, but by stating that logic doesn't apply to God, they actually are using logic to apply to God. And there's other things like this as well, where if something is either not able to be taken care of by the use of logic or the non-use of logic, they'll just employ denial such as they'll deny corporeal suffering, or they'll deny human existence, or they'll deny the, the presence of evil, which is also, that's actually something that happened in Christian science. So we find some of these Eastern views being incorporated into these other things from pantheism. But ultimately, I think the strongest thing, it's simply unlivable. It's an unlivable idea where if everything is God and all is one, then where does conflict arise from? Collisions, cataclysms. Is God consistently destroying himself? Because if we look at the general portent of what happens in the world and the amount of conflict that's there, if all is God and God is one, that's a stark contrast to the reality that we see on a daily basis. And so this simply just does not explain or explore the right questions and it does not have as coherent an understanding of the universe that you would find in Christian theism. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of self-defeating statements and arguments made that have a, a weak internal consistency with, uh, with pantheism is, is how you're explaining. Would you agree, Luke? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, thanks for that. That was that was marvelous. Well, Joe, let's let's move on to the next worldview that we covered in our first part, panentheism. And uh, maybe you could refresh our listeners what that means because a lot of people just hear pantheism, and this is not pantheism. This is panentheism. So, how does this worldview, you know, fall short, and and how would you compare it with the Christian worldview? Well, if we remember, panentheism is the belief that all is in God and God is in all. It differs from pantheism, which says all is God and God is all. So remember, panentheism is like 
a God who is partially finite and partially infinite. They call this view bipolar because he has a uh, two poles to deal with. There's the infinite pole, and then you have the finite pole, the spiritual pole that's immaterial in God, that's infinite, and then you have the material pole, which is finite. And this God learns and grows and uh, interacts with his creation, much like we do with each other on a day-to-day basis. But the problem with panentheism is it's a contradiction in terms. It's a total um, a paradox, and I, I define that word paradox in the sense of a contradiction, logical contradiction, that says you can be both an infinite and a finite at the same time and in the same sense. It's a contradiction in terms. You'd basically have to say that the finite pole of God, his material nature, which is the universe, is eternally finite. And obviously, a finite thing must have a cause. It must have come to be. It must have a beginning if it is indeed finite. But the other side of things is his infinite pole, which doesn't have a cause. And that doesn't have to come to be at a certain point of time. So you have this contradiction coming together in this God who is both dependent and independent at the same time for its existence. It's almost like the finite side of God is dependent on the infinite side, and the infinite side is dependent upon the finite side. It's like one brick suspended in midair trying to hold up another brick, and then vice versa. They're mutually uh, reliant on each other. Uh, And that boils down, if any part of God is finite or dependent, then it means that God is somebody who has to uh, be reliant on another cause of its existence. And then secondly, it's like believing that a glass of water is both full and not full at the same time in the same sense. It's a total contradiction in terms. And how can a finite God, like a pantheon theistic God, actually have victory over evil? There is no guarantee of that victory, but just a continual struggle between good and evil. And then God is in this constant process of becoming, much like the human life is. So God ends up being just a giant human being, an organism. That's why they call it organicism or uh, processism or process theism. And it sounds to me, Joe, that it has some similarities with finite godism, that that um, panentheism and finite godism are kind of um, uh, cousins of, of sorts, that they, they adhere to, you know, similar worldviews. Would that be correct assessment? Yes, absolutely. And I think the main difference would be that the panentheistic uh, concept of God would be one that tries to foster relationships between and preserve relationships between God and man. And whereas, and, and I, I was sorry for cutting you off there, Joe, but I, you know, we find this um, uh, popular in our world today. Um, as I, I brought out in the first um, episode on worldviews, that there are some popular quote unquote Christian authors who adhere to a panentheistic understanding of the world. And they're very vocal about that. I, I had mentioned one 
um, a gentleman by the name of Richard Rohr, who I have, by the way, met, and he he is a delightful human being, very kind, very, very nice man. But I was, I, I'll be honest, in one of his lectures about St. Francis, um, he came out and just said, I'm a pan-entheist. And I scratched my head and I said, well, boy, that, that seems to be a, a contradiction of terms. So so we do see this pan-entheism in the church today. Am I correct, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. You do. And it, and it might be derived from just ignorance of the Word of God or people doing their best to try to figure out the revelation as they read it. And God uses anthropomorphic terms to describe God and his nature. It describes him as walking, as as talking, as you know, having an arm that's not too short, he cannot save, or the the under the wings of of the Lord and and so forth. And we don't make the conversion and seeing the Bible as trying to communicate in a language that we can understand some principles about God, but he uses human language to do that. But but a bigger flaw when you start to see things as in a pantheistic or a, in a process way in terms of God's nature, you are introducing change to God. In other words, he goes from a point of ignorance to the point of knowledge. He grows in his understanding as time goes by with his creation. And when you introduce change into God's nature, what you're doing is introducing temporality and time into that because ultimately change really is the mental measurement of time in befores and afters. So you have to account for the change in God now, and if there's any change in an entity, then it's automatically finite, and you have to have a cause for that change. So good. So very good. Well, Luke, we're to our last worldview that we introduced on the first episode, and maybe you could help us untangle polytheism. What what are some of the problems with polytheism, and um, why would we as theists be in disagreement with polytheism. Well, I will certainly attempt to untangle some things, Brian, but we'll see how far we get with that. At the best, I think we can make a comparison between the two. Of course, poly being the prefix here tells us that we're not dealing with a single creative entity, but that we are dealing with a number of entities that are considered to be gods, but are, as in several other views we've discussed, finite. So these are not infinite beings because together they serve a purpose that the god of theism serves as a singular. And in this instance, basically, they pondered this question about nature and these gods, and they've begun to associate particular aspects of nature, such as volcanoes or hurricanes you know, lightning storms, different elemental aspects of the earth as deities. And it it arises from a superstition and a suspicion that something more than the finite is at play within these elements because they are beyond man, but not so far beyond that they are what we would consider an infinite God. And so they've predicated many different gods or deities that are that sort of have their own little realms of influence, whether it's making the crops grow, or whether it's making the lightning stop, or whether it's making the wind start blowing when they're out at sea, or whether it's, you know, all of these things that the Christian God 
being infinite controls all of these elements. Well, in their world, a being, whether friendly or unfriendly, that's sort of how they determine right and wrong or good and evil, friendly and unfriendly based on your personal experience relative to this being is. And so they spend their lives often seeking to appease or align themselves in some way, shape, or form with the beings that are most advantageous for them to be aligned with. In Hinduism, uh, in particular, they have many, many gods, millions of gods. and But they beg the question, so if nature has birthed the god that controls the element of nature, then which is greater, nature that birthed the god or the god that controls the elements? And if nature birthed the god, then how could the god be superior to the nature that birthed it? Is not nature the one that is then the god? But they still seek to try to personalize or personify these elements within nature. This is clearly something that's been conceived by human minds. And so these divinities that they're seeking to appease really just seem to be the product of their own superstitions. And it lends itself to a lot of really... um, Bad practices, we'll just put it that way, that you might find in witchcraft and some of the early Greek understandings of deities and sometimes even in modern religions like Mormonism. But they believe that there are many gods acting in the world. And then lastly on this, they're in clear contradiction to science. And as you gentlemen know, we don't kowtow to science, but we do believe that if the Bible postulates something, that the observation of these things will at some point be visible in scientific understanding. In this idea of their universe, it's a solid state universe. So the universe itself is infinite, which is odd because their gods are finite. The universe is infinite and they are predicating this solid state universe that's contradicted by evidence, both in science and scripture. So, and that, you know, if the world were eternal, as Dr. Holton had mentioned in the discussion of the view of atheism, then now you're having the idea that life came from non-life, intelligence came from non-intelligence. You're you're still getting back to this idea that the universe had no cause, even though it's clearly failing and it's clearly decaying, which would then allow you to extrapolate back to a time of perfection, at which point it would have come into being. So in all of these items, It seems as if they've subdivided the universe in order to make it more livable for them, but it still has not solved the basic problems that are far better addressed in theism. Hmm. So good. Well, you know, our listeners, now they've had two podcasts on worldviews. And I know during our last episode, you guys even gave some more books, uh, recommended books. Luke, you mentioned Francis Schaeffer. Um, of course, you mentioned Thomas Aquinas, Joe, and and I mentioned Norm Geisler. Um, but I just want to come back to a simple book that our listeners um, may want to get uh, if they they want some more information on this. And that's really the springboard. And that is Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, Defending Your Faith. Because in this book, he breaks down what we've taken 
over a half hour to discuss, and he breaks it down in very uh, uh, wonderful bites that I think the average listener will be able to understand. And he also has a chart called Worldviews in Conflict. So if you're one of those listeners going, boy, what did these guys just say? I would encourage you to get Living Loud, Defending Your Faith by uh, Dr. Holden. That could really help break it down more. But I would also draw your attention to our last episode where those other books were given because worldviews can be a very, very in-depth look and study to, to understand them properly. So Joe, Luke, you guys did tremendous. And as usual, I just thank you so much for your, your intelligence and insight on uh, this very important topic. As always, it's great to be with you both. Wouldn't be anywhere else. I've absolutely enjoyed our discussions to this point. We invite you to join us next time as we answer one of the most difficult questions. You don't want to miss this podcast. The question is, if God exists, why is there evil? So until next time, proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith.